We are here to study the book of Hosea. So if you have your Bible, open with me to the book of Hosea. It's right next to Daniel, so it would be the first of what you might call the minor prophets. Uh, in a Hebrew Bible, all of the, the minor prophets are together in one book. Uh, Hosea would be the first of those. Uh, book of, of Hosea, just, just next door to, to the prophet Daniel. When you came in, you got two handouts. Um, if you're watching or listening online, you can get these handouts at our church's website, DelrayBaptistChurch.org. Go to seminars. You can find these uh, there for you. Um, this first uh, handout that is, that is two-sided, this is something I put together every time I'm studying a book of the Bible uh, that basically gives me uh, an opportunity to think through issues that are going to affect my reading of the book. So who wrote it? Who's it written to? What are some of the key themes that we're going to see all the way through the book? And then for me, kind of most importantly, is what's the outline or how does uh, this book fit together? What is the argument that God, the Holy Spirit, is working through the author uh, and, and to the audience and, and for us. So uh, on your handout there, you'll notice it says, An Outline of Hosea. I don't think this is the only outline, so this is not uh, you know, inspired. This is what, um, what I came up with after my time of study. I encourage you to, yeah, to study the book of Hosea for yourself and to improve upon this. Uh, so this is intended to be a resource to start the discussion and to start the studying of this book and other books for the rest of, of the days that the Lord, Lord gives you. Um, that's also, by the way, one of the reasons we do this is not just to help you to understand books of the Bible. It is to do that, but it's with the intent that you would then help other people to study it. So as you're reading this, be thinking about, okay, who's somebody else that I could read through the book of Hosea with and talk about the things that we see there? This is intended for you to have, for us to have, so that we can give it to others as well. If you want to talk more about how, would you, how you would even think about doing that, we'd be glad to, to help you do that during a break or um, after church some, some Sunday. All right, book of, book of Hosea. One of the things I do whenever I'm studying a book of the Bible is I try and find one theme verse, kind of one verse that sums up what the whole book is about. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, you, I'd love to hear if you find another one as we're studying through. You think, oh, this could be a good one as well. Uh, for me, I think Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 is, is a great one. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Right out of the gates, we are met with the intensity of what we're going to see in this, this story of Hosea and his wife, Gomer and the great tragedy and redemption that's found here in, in this book. This book is, is known for the opening story, the story of, of Hosea uh, being called by God to, to marry Gomer, who is going to run off and be unfaithful, and in her unfaithfulness, uh, is going to yeah, bear three children. We think the first one is actually probably uh, Hosea's. There's some discussion about that, but the, certain, the, the next two certainly are not. This is obviously going to be a heart-wrenching experience for Hosea. His heart is broken by the unfaithfulness of his wife. But God is not just taking this guy through the torture chamber for no reason. He is doing it to teach him what God feels like when his people sin against him. That is to, we're to see it as spiritual adultery. So one of the things as we're studying this, I hope that we can, we can feel the weight of this this. Um, yeah, this turning from the Lord and what it really means and the way we should feel it. 
So let's go here to the book of Hosea. We're going to start in, in chapter 1, and we're going to see who, who, who wrote the book here. Uh, well, the, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, uh, in the days of Uzziah, good king, Jotham, good king, Ahaz, bad king, Hezekiah, good king, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, real bad king, the son of Joash, king of, of Israel. So in, these, yeah, in this opening verse here, we got a lot of background information. So first of all, who's, who's the author? Yeah, his name's right there, Hosea. His name means Yahweh has saved or the Lord has saved. It's a variation of the name Joshua. Um, God is, is going to work salvation before his eyes for him to see uh, in, in his very own life. And um, then he's going to call him to proclaim it. So he's going to live it and he's going to, to tell about it. He is a prophet to the, the northern kingdom. So in Israel's day, the, the kingdom has divided under Solomon. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is also known as Israel, or in this book you'll see often referred to as Ephraim, because Ephraim is one of the prominent tribes in the northern kingdom. So you're going to see Ephraim mentioned a lot, representing the whole northern kingdom. And then you have the southern kingdom, also known as who? As Judah, that's right. So you have Judah in, in the south. The northern kings of Israel, there were no good kings. In the south, it's kind of a mixed bunch. There's more good uh, than there is certainly in the north. And that's one of the reasons that God allows them to live, live longer. Now, one of the other things that's important to understand just going on in the background in these days in Israel is that this was a time of great prosperity. So, yeah, the stock market is booming. The crops... I mean, they're, they're blowing up. Everything is great in Israel in regards to prosperity. Economy is up. Uh, agricultural bounty is good. Prosperity abounds. But at the same time, there's unprecedented wickedness. So while they're thriving culturally, they are going down the tubes um, morally and in regards to their devotion to God. So idolatry, injustice, unrighteousness are, are abounding. Uh, And that's one of the things you'll notice whenever you read through the prophets. Whenever there is idolatry, it's always connected to injustice. So sinning against God is going to lead to sinning against your neighbor. Um, The great commandment is violated in in Hosea's day. Also notice here that the, uh, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. So God is speaking to his people through the prophet, and he is going to do this for their good. Now, what's ironic about this is that yeah, God's people don't want to hear from God. I mean, they, they really kind of, in one sense, feel like they don't need Him. They've got all these alliances with other nations. They've got these other gods that they can cry out to. And they really don't feel a need for God. So when God starts speaking to them, they're really kind of shrugging it off. Now, the other interesting thing that's going on at this time is that Hosea is not the only prophet who's who's proclaiming God's word to God's people at this time. You also have another prophet speaking to the north. Anybody know who it is? His name starts with an A. Amos, very good. Yeah, we got Amos in the north. Then you've got a couple guys in the south. Anybody want to take a guess? Isaiah, Isaiah good. And then Micah. Isaiah and Micah are, are in the south. So 
One of the things that's always happening through all of the kings, whenever you're reading through First and Second Kings and Chronicles, one of the things to remember is that God always has prophets who are speaking to the kings, um, highlighting areas of obedience, which tend to be minimal, and then always putting on blast their evil and idolatry, calling them to repent so that they're not destroyed. God is always merciful to have the voice uh, of a prophet speaking to his people. Actually, one of the greatest curses that can happen is when God ceases to speak. When he says, have it your way, and just leaves them alone. Which we're actually going to see that come up a couple times here in, in the book of, of Hosea. Now, Hosea has, has a nickname. Uh, by some, he's been called the deathbed prophet. It's not the, it's not the name you want unless you're like a pro wrestler. But like this guy, he's the deathbed prophet. Anybody know why he's called the deathbed prophet? Because he's the last prophet to speak to the northern kingdom before they're going to get taken away in exile by Assyria. This is their their final word before they're about to go and have hooks in their mouths and and stripped down naked in shame and led off to Assyria and be taken into slavery and captivity. This is the final word uh, to to his, his people. Now, if you looked at the handout that we gave there, I'm proposing that the book of Hosea is arranged in... In five, what you might call cycles. So five cycles here. Uh, You'll notice the first is chapters uh, 1 through 2-1, where we're going to see Israel's adultery illustrated. And what you notice in in the handout there is that you have, um, in each cycle, you have a, a section about judgment, and then you have a section about restoration. And that seems to be the pattern that goes all the way through the book. That God gives a word of judgment and he's going to highlight evils that they're doing and tell them about what's going to happen if they don't repent. And then, in his mercy, he's, he's going to follow it up with a word of restoration. Meaning a promise of what God will do if they will repent or what God is going to do even though they won't repent someday when he brings them back into the land. So you're going to have uh, these five cycles that are going to go through here with rotating messages of judgment and of of restoration, okay? Judgment is going to describe the consequences for sin, and then restoration is going to describe God's mercy and reconciliation, bringing the people back uh, to himself. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that the first two cycles happened earlier in Hosea's life, and that basically these five cycles are their summaries of his entire ministry and his messages in all of them. But that the first two, with the illustration of what happens with, with, with he and Gomer, uh, happens earlier on, and he's going to live that thing out, and then that's going to be kind of the backdrop for the rest of his ministry in cycles three through five. That's just, that's just my take, and some, some other people who've you know, commented on the book, uh, someday we'll, we'll, we'll know for sure, but that's the way I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it, and the way I'll, I'll, I'll take us through, through the book, Okay. Anybody have any questions on the background of Hosea uh, before we dive in and look at this, this first cycle here of Israel's adultery illustrated? Anybody have any questions? All right. Excellent. All right. So chapter 1, verse 1 through 2-1, we're going to see uh, the first cycle here. Um, before Hosea will speak of Israel's sin and God's redemption... He is going to be called to experience it firsthand. Chapter 1, verse 2, 
down through verse 9. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea the prophet, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went, and he took Gomer, the daughter of Dilbiom, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel is the translation. It means God will scatter. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name, No Mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So God calls his prophet here um, to take a wife who will be unfaithful and have children who aren't his to illustrate Israel's sin against God. So our first round of judgment here is, is we see an unfaithful wife and her unclean children. Again, this is verses 2 through 9. So notice again, verse 2, the, the Lord first spoke through Hosea. So the, the first conversation that God has with Hosea is calling him to do this, to what will amount to a heart-breaking act of obedience. Go and take a wife of whoredom. Now this wife, as we see in verse 3, her name is, is Gomer. Um, now this seems like a, a joyful prospect at first, but this marriage is going to be anything but joyful for him. She will be a wife of, of whoredom. Now this... Yeah, this, this word whoredom is going to show up all the way through here, and it's often used in the prophets. And it's used usually in two senses, um, unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant, which is his most plain meaning, but then you're going to see it also has a spiritual meaning. And what do you think that spiritual meaning is? Unfaithfulness to whom? Yeah, to God. It's the breaking of the covenant that God has with his people through idolatry and immorality. God's going to say, this is spiritual adultery that you're committing against me. Now, there's three views on the, yeah, the whoredom of, of Gomer. The first is that this is merely a spiritual analogy because God would never ask his prophet to do this. That's, that's one view. A second view is that she's already a prostitute and he knows exactly what he's getting into in the sense that he marries somebody who's already unfaithful. She's already maybe a temple prostitute uh, for the, the, the Baal cult. Or thirdly, and the one that, that I'm yeah, almost convinced of, uh, is that she's faithful to start with, but she is going to become unfaithful after they get married. The reason is because of how that parallels exactly what happens with Israel. She, just like Israel, is going to begin faithful, but will become unfaithful. She is going to be lured away into adultery. She is going to break the covenant, and she is going to break the heart of her husband. And in so doing, 
she's going to have children of whoredom. Now, we're going to see there's, there's three children here born from Gomer. Again, I think the first one is, is Hosea's, uh, but the next two, and we see in verses 6 and 8, are certainly not his. And, and these, will, yeah, these will be children uh, that will be conceived by, by Gomer as a result of promiscuity and likely temple prostitution. And God is commanding Hosea to take a wife knowing that she is going to be unfaithful and bear adulterous children for him. Now, the question that comes up is, why would God command this? Why would God ever ask his prophet to do this? So Greg and I were talking this, this week, and we're talking about this passage a little bit, and he said, I just got to know, why would, God, why would God ask that? Which is the great, great question. Right? You're welcome. Well, notice he tells us right there. He tells us in verse 2. See that word for? He's explaining why. He says, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You see, Israel had turned from faithfulness to God and given herself to another lover. In unbelief, she had, Israel had united herself with, with Baal. Now, Baal was a... Um, what you might call a fertility god. Um, they believed that if Baal was happy and happy with you and your land, that you would have great fertility. You would have um, yeah, harvest, agriculture would be up, um, wombs would be filled with, with life. Um, and the way that you would commune with Baal was yeah, through sexual immorality with temple prostitutes. That you would, you would go in and you would lay with a temple prostitute. And that would be the way that you would commune with Baal and be pleasing to him. And that if you would do this, along with other sorts of things, uh, that he would be pleased and he would bless, he would bless your, your nation. Okay? Well, this, this union with Baal that, that Israel had by faith produced a nation full of unbelieving children They are consecrated to an idol. So in the same way that Gomer is going to be unfaithful to Hosea, Israel had stepped out on the Lord and been communing with this other God, trusting Him, looking to Him to provide their needs. Now, I don't think we need to... This this could go without being said, but I think it's important just to go ahead and, and, and lay it out there that adultery is one of the most heart-wrenching, grievous things that a human can adore. The most intimate of areas, there's betrayal. This one whom you've covenanted with and said, for better, for worse, and given vows and pledged in love your faithfulness before God and before others, then turns their back and goes out and gives themselves to someone else in the most intimate of ways. God picks what might be the most graphic, heartbreaking image that a human can, can come up with in, in, in one sense. And he, he sets it front and center for God's people to look at. He says, I want you to look at this. I want you to see what this is. And I, this is not just for Hosea to, to see so that he could be a better preacher because he's walked through this. He wants... 
God wants Israel and all of his people forevermore to study this book and to see this and to feel how grievous this is. Because he wants us to see and to feel and to understand the weight of our sin. He wants his people to have this image burned into their minds so they can rightly understand the weight of their sin. Because there's one thing that tragically is pretty common in Israel and in the church is that sin's not that big of a deal to us. I messed up, I slipped up, I had a bad night. Versus understanding what what has actually occurred with sinning against the God of the universe who keeps your heart beating. That we have offended a holy God and not feeling the weight of that. We tend to be very horizontal in our dealings with, with our sins and thinking, how does it affect my life? Versus, does this offend the living God? And God wants us to feel the weight of our sin through this, this image. Now, I think it's important to notice here the, the land. He mentions the land here. Uh, why is land so important to Israel? Because they're in the land at this point. And why is that so important? Throw out a name that's connected with land. Abraham. Yeah, because God had made a promise to Abraham. God had made a promise to him uh, that, that he would give him land, seed, and blessing. This is part of the covenant promise that God made with Abraham. That he would give him a land in which um, his descendants, Israel, would experience his presence, his protection, his provision. He would care for them there in the land. This is, this is yeah, very important for Israel. But it always came with a sobering warning under the Mosaic law. That if you would enjoy the blessedness of the land, you should obey. Because if you run off with idols, what's going to happen? He's going to kick you out of the land. He's going to take you out in exile through Assyria or Babylon, which is what ultimately ends up happening. These, the book of Hosea here is intended to be a, a warning. Well, verse 3, So he went and he took Gomer and he conceived and bore him a son. So this is why I think bore him a son. I, I tend to think that this first child is, is his. There's discussion on that. I don't think it's yeah, hugely important. But um, the meaning of Gomer's name here is not real plain. What she, yeah, what she is called to do, uh, is, or what she is called, is less important in the story than what she actually does and who she represents, who is un, unfaithful Israel. Um, and, and before we move on to look at the other children with, with uh, Jez, or the name Jezreel here, I, I think we should just consider for a moment what this, what this meant for Hosea. Like following the, following the Lord requires absolute surrender to His will no matter what He calls you to. I mean, this is His first words, God's first words to Hosea. This is what I have for you. It's like Jesus would say, if anybody wants to come after me, you must deny himself, take up your cross and follow me. First words are, you want to follow me? You've got to die. This is what it means to be a believer. Is that you realize you come to the end of yourself and you surrender and you're going to give everything to the Lord. Well, this first child's name here in verse 4 and 5 is Jezreel, which means God scatters. This is going to be important, the name here, God scatters. Uh, His name will be prophetic for what God will do to Israel because of their idolatry. He's going to scatter them in in exile. And you notice when he says it's going to happen? What's it say there in verses 4 and 5? 
in just a little while. So sometime between eight and ten years from there, God is going to scatter them in judgment. And then he tells you why he's going to do this. I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. He's referring to an incident that happened here. Now, again, this is not the only thing that Israel's done. You're going to get a whole list of a bunch of other stuff that they've done. But this is one of the things that is on the list that God has uh, to bring against the house of Israel. In 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, you can read this another time, you've got a guy named Jehu, who was basically a guy that the Lord commissioned um, to execute uh, Jezebel and Ahab's descendants. And he did what God had called him to do, to be God's instrument of divine justice. But does anybody remember what Jehu did after that? Sorry, right. I encourage you to read 2 Kings in the new year. Okay, so he went, he went rogue. He went rogue and he started just executing everybody. I mean, it turns into a Godfather movie. He is just out, he is killing everybody who has any sort of association with Ahab at all. His, his ambition outran God's commission for him. He took vengeance into his own hands and he began just slaughtering everybody. And God says, uh-uh, he ends it and now he's going to bring punishment on, on his descendants. He says, on that day I will break the bow of of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. This is a valley between mountain ranges in Samaria and Galilee. Um, and this prophecy came to pass in 752 um, when Shalom assassinated uh, Zechariah, who was the fourth of Jehu's descendants, who was ruling the northern kingdom. Uh, it cut off Jehu's dynasty forever. Now, one of the questions that comes up, and I, I'm just going to go ahead and wade into it because it's going to happen elsewhere in the book as well. When you're reading through this, one of the interns asked, um, I think it was Drew asked, does this mean that God holds other people accountable for the sins of past generations? Because you see God here executing justice on the the descendants of Jehu here. And this is obviously a, a tricky question. Does God hold others accountable for the sins of past generations? So it's a good question, Drew. We'll ask it, we'll go through it another time. All right. Um, <laughs> I'll try a little bit, okay? Um, The answer is yes and no, okay? Um, Listen to this from Ezekiel or Exodus uh, 34, uh, verses 5 and 6. The Lord uh, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Uh, the, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Then he goes on to talk about how he will not overlook sin, but he will hold people accountable to the third and fourth generations, right? So what does this mean? Does God hold people accountable for previous generations' sins? N- let's start with the no part. No in the, in the Ezekiel 18 sense, where a father will not be judged for the son's sins, nor a son will not be judged for the father's son- sins, but each one will be held according, accountable for what they have done. So every person is, is accountable for their own sin before God, and you will not be judged directly for other people's sins. Okay. Yes, though, in another sense, there is a second-hand guilt uh, that is pretty evident in the Scriptures. The most foundational case would be that of what? Adam. Yeah, you have the federal headship of, of Adam. Which means when Adam sinned in the garden, who else sinned with him? The Bible said all of us did. 
all of us rebelled in the Garden of Eden in, in Adam when he sinned. So we are all guilty of Adam's sin. This is why we're born under a curse. Everybody's born a sinner. It manifests itself in different ways, but everybody is. Now, what's important about this, though, is to understand... Um, so there's your no and there's your yes. The important thing to understand, though, is that it is God's prerogative always for Him to atone for this sin in whatever way He desires. God gets to determine how He's going to work out this, this vengeance. So, for instance, the seven sons of Saul were hung because Saul had broken a, a treaty with the Gibeonites. I don't know if you remember that or not. Um, but God's name had been blasphemed because Saul had broken covenant with the Gibeonites. And, and so God brought judgment on his throne for it. It's the same thing that happens here with Jehu. The very reason that Jehu is being judged and his descendants is because he went ahead of God and he was, yeah, he was zealous in his, his view of, of righteousness. And God says, no, 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 that actually wasn't righteous. It was fleshly. God gave Jehu a commission on Ahab, and he went crazy and killed everybody associated with, with Ahab. So here's the important thing to understand. Though there may be um, secondhand guilt, if you'll call it that way, God makes it very clear that nobody gets to determine how justice falls on the guilty except for him. Romans 12, 19, Behold, uh, or beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, an element of this is intended to make us say, what? That's not what? Totally, you got it. That is not fair. That is not fair. And that is true. But life is not fair. And it's also intended to prime the pump of our heart to point us to another place that it wasn't fair. Which is where? On the cross, where 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Jesus on the cross got charged with all of our sins, even though he had never committed a one. He became guilty on our behalf. Atonement isn't fair. Jesus became man. He humbled himself in order to represent us on the cross. So... What this does for us is that both the offending ones and the offended ones are both supposed to cast themselves upon the mercy of God because ultimately nobody is innocent before the Lord. Now, I'll pause right there to see if anybody has a follow-up question on that. I thought it was important just because it's here in the text to go ahead and, and go there rather than just breeze over it. But anybody have any questions about, about what we just talked about there with God executing judgment on uh, Jehu's descendants uh, because of Jehu's sin. Yo. And what's your name? Josiah. Josiah. Great name. Right. Uh, so one thing I was curious about is actually with the uh, story of Jehu, there seems to be a lot of indication in that story that Jehu is actually fulfilling what he's supposed to do in mm -hmm. a sense. Yep. So just clarify, or because it kind of seems like you know everybody Jehu kills is either like related 
that yep. Yeah, that's great. That, that's great. So, so if, we, if we read, so the question is, God actually commends Jehu, but then if you notice, Jehu just keeps going. And he becomes basically this rogue hitman in Israel and is going around and just taking out people. He basically feels like he's got now a king's ex from the Lord to be able to go out and just assassinate people at will. And that's what he begins to do. He goes, his ambition leads him beyond God's commission and he begins to take justice into his own hands. So he should have stopped when he, had, when he had done what God had called him to do, uh, but, but he didn't. That's, that's where the, the guilt came. So, good, good question, though. Yeah. If any of you want to talk about more applications about that in present day, happy to do that uh, in a break or, or later on we do more in Q&A. Now, let's go back, let's go back here and, and then get, get back into the, the heart of the story. So we've got Jezreel here. His name means God scatters. One of the things that's really important uh, in that name is that God is not only going to scatter Israel in judgment by sending him into exile, but he's also, what else do you, what do you scatter? Seed. And that's going to turn into a great harvest. And we're going to see it through several of the restoration things that, that Israel is actually going to come back and there's going to be a great harvest. So God is going to bring life out of the judgment. Um, it's going to be he's in, in his restoration. That'll be something to be watching for in regards to Jezreel. Well, in verses 6 and 7, uh, next we, we see that uh, she, she bore a daughter and called her name No Mercy or Lo Ruamah. Lo, if you have that, that translation there, Lo means not. Uh, and Ruama means to have tender feelings of compassion for or, or, or mercy. Um, the word often uses, is used to express the love uh, between a parent and a child. So why would anybody call their, their daughter no mercy? I mean, that's, that's a rough way to get to the dinner table every night, you know? No mercy, come here. Well, he tells them here because for... I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. As Israel has withdrawn from God, so God is now showing that He is going to withdraw from her to show her no more pity, to show her no more compassion, no more mercy. God is going to abandon her to her lusts. This name of no mercy characterizes a nation who was, ironically, set apart strictly to no mercy. To K-N-O-W, mercy. But now they are N-O, mercy. They were supposed to be set apart on the hill as the people who have known God's favor and love. But now, there a billboard hangs above them. God has left them. No more. No more mercy. Which is, by the way, the scariest thing that God can say to a person or a nation is, Thy will be done. Have it your way. I will leave you to yourself and your idols. This is what God's doing here. Well, verse 7, But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So Judah is going to continue to receive mercy. That's the southern kingdom. Okay, So remember, Hosea is speaking primarily to the northern kingdom. But as we roll along, you're going to see he's going to start saying, Hey, by the way, Judah, you all better watch out too because you're about to get it. So he's going to start doing that as well. But, but initially, we see this word of, of commendation here. But, but this deliverance of Judah, it's not going to come through army or military strength, but it's going to come by the might of God. Judah's been warned to watch here and to not follow Israel's example of idolatry. Well, verses 8 and 9, When she weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Call his name, Not My People. Now, 
in this day and age, weaning would have been about three years old. So remember, this, we've got this in a couple of verses here, but this is days and weeks and months and years that Hosea is living through this. This is a long time. And she had weaned no mercy. She conceived and bore a son named Not My People. Four or five years have elapsed here, which is intended to help us to see the the weight and the sorrow that Hosea must be feeling, but also the patience that God is having. God's patience toward His people here is, is immense. But in the midst of all of this, time has not healed their sin. It's not led them to repentance. He just keeps giving them more time and they keep running away. The name of this child, not my people, is Lo-Ami. Lo means not. Ami means my people. And he calls him to do this for you are not my people and I am not your God. This is again a complete change in God's relationship with Israel. The covenant has been annulled by their unfaithfulness. God describes Israel in a way that he never does. He never does this in the Bible. These have always been my people who he boasts over. You remember how the Exodus began? God appeared to Moses and he says, I have seen the affliction of who? My people. And then you remember what, uh, when Moses says, I can't go because I can't talk right. What, are they, what am I going to do if they ask uh, who sent me? And God said to tell him who? I am sent me. Well, here the Hebrew reads, I am not. It's like God says, I am not for these people. They're not my people. So the exile is, is going to come about as basically a complete reversal of the exodus. The exodus, they were delivered from slavery to the land of promise. And now in exile, they're going to be taken out of the land of promise because of their sin and brought back into exile. This is why you're going to see uh, the, uh, Egypt mentioned several times throughout the book of Hosea. It's because he's drawing their, their memory to the slavery that they used to have in, uh, back in, in Egypt and what it cost them. They would think of Egypt and think of, of slavery. So that's the first round of of judgment. So we have Hosea here with a wife, Gomer, who has been unfaithful. His heart is broken. His life is destroyed. He has these children walking around. Uh, At least two of them are not his. They're even named so that every single day when he calls them to dinner, that he's reminded of the unfaithfulness of what's happened in his house and the way this is broken everything here, and then when he walks outside, he sees it everywhere all around him, the spiritual unfaithfulness of the nation. This has been a, a long five, six, seven, eight, nine years for, for Hosea here. And now in chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 2, verse 1, we get our first word of restoration. We're going to see a faithful God and His innumerable children. So we saw an unfaithful wife and her unclean children. Now we're going to see a faithful God and His innumerable children. So though there is judgment, God lifts Israel's eyes beyond the rubble of their future to give them hope. Look again in verse uh, chapter 1, now verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people... It shall be said to them, children of the living God. 
And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. It's as if Hosea stops this heartbreaking novel and turns to the end of the book. He's like, it's like he stops, he goes all the way to the end to see, does this thing let up? And he reads about a day of glory, a day of restoration, a day of healing, a day of reconciliation. God gives him a window into the future of both his own life and also the life of the nation of Israel. The darkness will not last forever, but it will be driven away by the light of the steadfast love of the Lord. God will not leave His people under judgment. Now, a few things to notice here. Again, we have the Abrahamic covenant that is is alluded to. Again, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God promised Abraham three things. I mentioned them earlier. Anybody remember what they were? Pretty good. Land, seed, and blessing. Land, a place where His presence will be and His protection, His provision. Seed, offspring, children... And blessing. He will bless them so that they can be a blessing to the entire world. And God assures that those promises are still intact right here. Did you catch it? Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. In the same place they were rejected, the land, they'll be reconciled. And then in chapter 1, verse 14, they shall go up from the land. And we see the people are here, so we have the seed, and we see this restoration, which again is blessing. So land, seed, and blessing is all over this section right here that God has kept His promise to Abraham, and He will, despite Israel's unfaithfulness. There's another covenant that is alluded to here. Did anybody catch it? Okay, the Davidic covenant. Where do you see that? Uh-huh. Yeah, chapter uh, 1, verse, verse 11 there. Um, you shall, uh, they shall appoint for themselves one head. This nation, one day, is going to be reunited in one body. Northern and southern kingdoms are going to be brought back together again. And he sh- they shall appoint for themselves one head. This is a clear reference to the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That God promised that there would be a king... Who one who would serve as their head to rule over them, who would forever sit on the throne of David. David's dead, y'all, so there's got to be somebody on down the line who is the Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the one who will be a king who will reign forever and ever, who has an everlasting kingdom that shall never end, the book of Daniel tells us. So we say the Abrahamic covenant, we say uh, Davidic covenant. Those are a couple important things to notice here. And then uh, the other thing is important to notice here is, is the names. You notice how the names all get flipped back around, right? The names given to Hosea's three children are shown to be purposeful, not only to communicate judgment, but also to communicate what? Yeah, redemption and restoration. Jezreel, Israel will be scattered in seed, or in, in, like seed in judgment, but they will be gathered back as a fruitful harvest. No mercy. Israel will be given over without mercy to the Assyrians, but will be delivered and shown mercy through Messiah. 
and then not my people. Israel will be disowned because of their, un, their covenant unfaithfulness, but then God is going to seek them out. He's going to call them by name. He's going to call them home, and he's going to make them his own again. God overcomes the sin and its effects by seeking out his wayward people, just as Hosea is now going to be called to do with Gomer. Hosea is now going to be called to call her home and to bring her back in and to make her his wife again because it's exactly what God is going to do with the nation of Israel. So what I want to do is I want to pause there. and Before we take a quick break, I want to see, does anybody have any questions about the first cycle that we had here of, of judgment and of, of restoration? Yes, so first of all, I would say she wasn't yet. She became a prostitute after they got married. But he said go take a prostitute. Yeah, yeah, so she is going to be a, she's going to be a wife of whoredom. Yeah, go take a wife of whoredom. She wasn't that way before. She wasn't that way before. Oh, no. Yeah, that's why, now there's some people who would take that view. I think it, in my mind, it breaks down the illustration that God's making with Israel, that Israel began in faithfulness to the Lord and then went unfaithful. And I think in the same way, he's marrying this woman, but God warns him, this is what's going to happen. She's going to be unfaithful. In the same way that God knowingly took Israel into himself, knowing that she would be unfaithful. Good question. We can go there now. Yeah. Is there, you want to read the verse you're thinking of? Yeah, and, and in, that, in that context there in First Peter, you have Peter writing to a Gentile church who were not God's people for another reason than Israel was not their people. So God created the nation of Israel to uniquely uh, display His glory and His character. They were His people because He made them His people. They rebelled against Him and He said, now you are not my people, in the same way that all of the nations are always not God's people. Right? But now in Christ, what He does... Jesus comes, and under the new covenant, God grafts Jews and Gentiles together into one as the church, uh, to where now Gentiles share in the blessedness of true Israel. And, um, and now these people who are not my people are now grafted in, so we get to enjoy the same reconciliation that Israel knew. Israel knew it for a different reason. They left it and then were brought back into it. Gentiles were never in it, but they got grafted in by God's mercy. So, yeah, good. Yo. For more background... Understanding, um, the Israelites get taken captive and become exiled 
Yes, so northern kingdom gets taken by Assyrian, Assyria. Southern kingdom gets taken by Babylon. So, um, yeah, so N comes before S, and I um, comes before J. So Israel, Judah, and then you have A comes before B, Assyria comes before Babylon. That's the way I always remember it. So, um, so yes, that confused half of you. But you maybe understand what I'm saying. So <laughs> the northern kingdom comes before the southern kingdom, and it's uh, Assyria who takes them, and then Babylon takes the, the southern kingdom. Yeah. Do they stay captive under them until Jesus comes? Or do they... Not until Jesus comes, but uh, until uh, the time of Cyrus, where there's going to be this, this, uh, uh, yeah, this regathering of Israel back into the land, which is prime, being primed under in the days of Nehemiah, Ezra, all these guys with the prophets Malachi and Haggai and Zechariah, proclaiming and preparing Israel so that 400 years later, when Messiah comes, they'll be back in the land ready to, ready to hear and to receive. So, yeah, great. Last question, we'll take a break. Should modern Israel be viewed as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy? <laughs> Thank you for that question. I appreciate that. Well, Christians will have lots of different opinions on this. And to be a member of Delray Baptist Church, you're welcome to have any opinion on that. That's great. I'd be happy to talk with you about that. So... So, so the question is, is modern-day Israel fulfillment of prophecy? I would say no. And the reason no is because they're not a believing nation. They've not repented and believed in their Messiah. So they're in sin. They're, they, are, they are right now, yeah, under God's judgment. Um, and they need to repent. And they need to believe in their, in their Messiah. Now, the way that I read Romans 9 through 11, my hope is that through the witness of the church, uh, that there will be a great revival of ethnic Israel uh, before the return of the Lord Jesus. That's my hope. That's the way I read Romans 9 through 11, which you can listen to those sermons if you disagree, and then we can talk about it. I'm happy to. Um, but, yeah, so that's, that's my take on it. So don't ask me anything about policy questions and all that because that's the end. All right? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a little uh, break, and then we'll be back in about 10 minutes. Okay? Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you love us in spite of ourselves. Father, we all have been like, uh, like Gomer, straying away in our sin, but you in your mercy have sought us and brought us home. Thank you for the promise of the gospel and the hope that we have because of Christ. In his name, amen.